Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuer's Managing Editor at Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. And welcome to your weekly digest of some of the most interesting things going on in the world's capital markets. Everything we talk about today you can read more about at globalcapital.com. And if you like this show, then please subscribe. It's completely free and there's a new episode out every Friday. And if you really like what you hear, then tell your friends or even just your LinkedIn followers. Uh, we're really keen to reach as many people as possible. Um, now, coming up later, we speak to Kenny Wastel, our brand new leverage finance and private debt editor, who's had quite the first week at the paper. Uh, not only a fascinating cover story about the direct lending market, but also a podcast debut. So he'll be joining us to talk about that story later. Um, now, uh, one of the big bits of news this week in the world, not just in capital markets, was... Um, that China has this week begun to lift some of its restrictions uh, that form its zero COVID policy. Now, it's a policy that people blame for seizing up chunks of China's economy because of the limitations it puts on people's movement and their ability to work. And this, of course, has hit Chinese economic growth, global supply chains, and has been a worry for the emerging market economies in particular, a number of which supply China with raw materials, food and other primary goods. Now, that's been bad for emerging market credit, too. Uh, and that's a group of issuers that have already had a tough time in the market, and not, not least their investors, too, um, the ones that buy the bonds. Uh, what sort of countries will benefit, John, from an increase in Chinese economic activity as a result of the uh, the rollback of the um, restrictions? Well, I think there's two obvious categories. Um, one is those that export sort of hard commodities. Uh, that's particularly South America. Um, Chile and Peru uh, produce copper and other metals. Brazil, huge quantities of iron ore, soy and beef. Um, but then you, if you also think about the Middle East, where, you know, we're producing oil and gas, um, Chinese economic growth usually leads to increased demand for those because um, China imports a lot. And, um, you know, so, th so that should be supportive for uh, oil and gas prices, too. And um, how are borrowers responding to the news? I, I mean, I feel like this this restriction has probably come a bit late in the year to spur a sudden um, bout of issuance in the in the bond market uh, for these borrowers. But um, mm. what what do we what do we think uh, borrowers are anticipating? Well, I think it's yes, on its own, it's it's not going to open, sort of transform the new issue market. But it's another piece of good news um, to, to sort of help with the following wind that, that is already there in capital markets and, and including emerging markets from the Federal Reserve's change of stance. And I think the 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 overriding thing is that um, it looks like the Federal Reserve is going to slow down the pace of its interest rate rises. People are expecting it to raise rates by 50 basis points in this month, uh, uh, whereas the, the last few rises have all been 75. And then, you know, some think that the the the, the rate the rises after that will be 25 basis points. So um, a, a sort of general uh, sort of slowing off of the monetary tightening. And and this has put everybody in a, in a tremendous mood in capital markets, um, and and you know 
the bankers that advise emerging market governments and and companies are sort of active talking to them and and even sort of suggesting that that some of the better ones uh, consider deals even now in december yeah because i mean as as uh, francesca young our emerging markets editor and oliver west our us bureau chief who wrote this story say it really is the uh, direction of the federal reserve uh, and its monetary policy that mm. that governs how emerging market borrowers uh, can access the bond market. And that's really what's made the year so hard for this market this year, hasn't it? Because rates have gone flying up, which pushes bond prices down uh, and makes it uh, borrowing more expensive for borrowers. And and all it's all happened very quickly, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, it's been a it's been a horrendous year for emerging markets on, on almost every front um, with, you know, direct uh, threats to their economy and society, such as food shortages caused by the Russia-Ukraine war, the, the soaring price of energy, which is much easier, of course, for com- countries in Europe and uh, North America to cope with than it is for countries in Africa, for example. And um, so, so you know, it's been it's been a, a horrible year. And I think the general expectation is uh, that next year will be a bit better. Um, and, you know, that those hopes, I think, have, have sort of strengthened as the, as the year has come to an end. But it's not necessarily blanket good news, is it? Uh, it uh, this is a very sort of complicated picture that we're looking at um and one of the one of the problems of um chinese economic growth rising again so quickly will be that it's it's quite possibly going to be inflationary um which will put the uh, put what the uh, federal reserve is doing with interest rates right back in the picture again yeah it's really interesting actually that the, the people uh, francesca and ollie spoke to were were quite divided on whether the the opening up of the COVID policy in China was was inflationary or deflationary, because uh, and and it's not often you get um, such a such a wide divergence of opinion on a sort of fairly basic economic issue, but the um, you know one argument I mean one of the reasons blamed for inflation in the first place was is always uh, disruption to supply chains. And, and you know, the biggest culprit there is the uh, strict policies in China, which have f- forced, you know, whole cities or parts of cities to shut down um, w- w- when there was a, a bout of COVID. So, you know, that some people think, uh, well, when that those restrictions ease, uh, supply chains will, will catch up with the backlogs and, you know, the... the um, difficulty of, of buying parts and raw materials will will decline and therefore you know it, it, it's it's benign for inflation but but other people think well you know more economic activity creates more demand and therefore it pushes up inflation so which is certainly and, the experience i would say the last last year or two you know the recovery from covid it's um there's been pent-up demand and the money sort of chases to get hold of as many many goods as possible as quickly as possible and that's what pushes prices up well, you, you, I mean, in that period too, it's it's a supply and demand, isn't it? Because mm. there was there was demand uh, growth and and supply constriction. So, um, yeah, I mean, we don't know exactly what will happen, but the, I think in a way, the interesting thing is um, that the the market is so obsessed with inflation and and interest rate rises that even something that's unequivocally positive for the economy, especially emerging market economies can even make some uh, emerging market debt analysts 
worried simply because they're they're afraid of more interest rate rises. And I guess we also have to consider the fact that if China eases back on COVID restrictions, then there's likely to be an increase in COVID infection rates. Yeah. Which could, yeah. of course, lead to future shutdowns. I, I, we can't rule that out either, can we? Unfortunately, that is, that is true. And, um, you know, um, I, th- I think there, there are even some, some signs of that already, um, of, of strains in the health system there. But um, yeah, we obviously have to hope that uh, you know that doesn't that doesn't happen too badly. Hmm. Yeah. So um, going from um, one economic behemoth to a to a bond <laughs> market behemoth um, in the European market, one of the most important bond issues this week came from the European Union, uh, which raised six and a half billion euros in a new fifteen-year bond for its next generation EU program, while at the same time increasing another of its bonds by five hundred million euros uh, to fund Ukraine. Now, it's a big event whenever the EU is in the bond market because it has such a huge borrowing program, meaning other borrowers need to keep out of its way when it's doing a deal. Um, It does billions and billions of issuance at a time, and it's done syndicated deals in 10 of 12 months this this last year. Uh, And this week's deal was its last for the year. Um, But people in the sovereign, supranational and agency bond market are thinking about how to navigate their own course. Uh, through a congested market this year when this super tanker is in the water and may also be about to get bigger. So how big are we talking, Ralph? And 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 why why is it going to be more next year? Right. Well, first of all, let's put these uh, numbers in the context of what other SSA issuers do. Now, um, the, the biggest uh, supranational and agency borrowing programmes are typically or typically have been from the European Investment Bank and the German agency KFW, who have generally raised something like in the region of sort of 60 to maybe 90 billion euros a year. And they've done that for a long time. Now, the EU as a borrower was was tiny for a number of years. Um, It didn't really do much in the capital markets at all. But then came COVID. And the EU set up, uh, first of all, a a bond, uh, sorry, a borrowing program so that it could fund uh, against unemployment for member states. And then it developed its next-gen EU programme, uh, which is designed to help countries. It makes loans to countries so that they can be more resilient as they come out of COVID. Uh, and that basically, that led to it. And just under the next-gen EU programme alone, it issued €71 billion Euros in 2020. That was €100 billion Euros this year. And people are talking next year about the EU raising 160 billion euros just for that program. HSBC estimates 140 to 160 billion. Barclays estimates as high as 180 billion. Ralph, so this is much bigger than any other supranational entity or a government agency, isn't it? Mm. Um, leaving aside, of course, the US mortgage agencies, which are vast, but um, but it, but it's it's. And it puts it puts the EU at the sort of borrowing scale of a of a sort of mediumish to large country, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, there are plenty of people in the market that um, see this as a sovereign issuer uh, rather than um, a sort of typical supranational or agency. Uh, that's partly because of the size of the borrowing program. It's partly because of the nature of the institution, um, and it's also down to I think how they. How they issue their bonds because they do a lot of syndicated deals uh, through lead managers 
in the way that we're used to in the SSA bond market, but they also do a lot of auctions like a government would. So it's very programmatic mm-hmm. issuance uh, just to get through that sheer volume of debt. And of course, it has to be in the market all the time, which is another classic hallmark of a, of a sovereign issuer. Uh, and, uh, you know, these 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 borrowing volumes are expected to stay high for a number of years. As uh, I saw one estimate in um, the story that Addison Gong, our SSA editor who, who covered this, said, uh, you know, they expected the EU to be borrowing 150 billion for years as member states sort of take up more and more next gen EU loans um, as we head into a recession. Yeah, and that's before um, the next round of political negotiations, which one can expect when um, it, it sort of they start to address. Well, when we repay these loans, uh, can we have them back, please? And um, you know, rather than paying back those bondholders um, who are, by the way, perfectly happy to own the bonds, um, why don't why don't we just roll over the program and? Um, you know, invest in some more things, which is what I fully expect to happen. And so what, what starts out as a sort of a temporary borrowing program to fund a crisis response will probably end up being a kind of permanent debt stock. And of course, you know, there are other there will be other pressures on the SSA market next year, too. As we as we mentioned, there's, you know, recessions to fund. And um, there's a, there's an expectation from a survey that Addison did of people in the market that borrowing requirements could be up about 20% across the board next year in this market. And in this market, that's an awful lot of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that will be led not just by, you know, the next generation EU program, uh, but also sovereigns uh, as they will have to try and fund their way through the energy crisis. And the bond market seems a, a pretty, pretty useful yeah. way of doing that. And of course, you know, there's that longer run uh, that longer running trend that we've talked about endlessly, which is what central banks are doing with their quantitative easing programs. There's, there'll be less support, less central bank mm. buying for the market as well. So there's that pressure too. Have people worked out how governments are going to fund their um, energy crisis responses, and 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 you know how much that's going to cost overall? Uh, no, they haven't, John. And that's that's the that's the big question mark. Um, the measures that we've talked about this year where countries have said uh have varied from a response like germany's which uh seem to think it wouldn't have to go to the bond market at all to fund its energy crisis support uh to the plan unveiled in september by the uk by the um government that was briefly in charge uh where mm-hmm. it said it was gonna get um the bond market to basically fund all of it and um, and the bond market spat that out and um now we have a new government and yeah uh, an attempt to sort of you know cut cut that borrowing requirement but uh undoubtedly mm. you know some some of this support will have to happen and some of it will have to be funded in the bond market but no no one knows yet and that's that's the big the big worry and you know i guess the effect that that has is it pushes up premiums uh when borrowers do come to the market and widen spread and makes the cost of borrowing higher for everybody um yeah. And so generally speaking, you know, the public sector in Europe has got more and more debt and is going to have to pay more for it, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's an interesting uh, quirk of this uh, next gen EU funding, which is um, that it's cheaper than going to some of the other institutions for loans. So one might well imagine that a country that can get cheaper money from the EU through the next gen programme, will therefore not take out a loan from, for example, 
the European Investment Bank. Now, the knock-on effect of that will be that the European Investment Bank or whichever other agency or supranational institution it, it, it is won't have to come to the capital markets to fund as much. Now, you would think that that would mean it could command a sort of tighter spread for its bonds because they would be rarer. Um, however, a key point about the EU's issuance program is it does so much that it has to pay a bit of a bit of a premium every time it comes to the market, especially if it comes in sort of bad markets, uh, because it's got to you know it's got to somehow persuade investors to to take on the risk of all this extra debt. Um, and of course, the knock-on effect for that is that other uh, SSA borrowers in the market will also then have to pay up a similar premium to get investors interested in their debt in the first place. So, you know, the picture overall is one of elevated borrowing costs in this market next year. So, Ralph, um, given its size and, and the sort of curious and unique nature of the EU, where does it where does its debt price compare with other issuers? Yeah, so well, let's take this week's deal as an example. Now, that 15-year bond, so 6.5 billion euros, it's quite a quite a big new issue. Uh, 15 years is a reasonably long maturity too, and that the EU managed to price that at 21 basis points over mid-swaps. Now, let's, let's compare that to an issuer like the EIB. Now, much of the EIB's euro benchmark issuance this year... Uh, has been deals of sort of three to four billion euros or so. Uh, and those tend to come well through mid swaps flat. So they come at sort of, uh, so for example, they did a deal uh, back in September. Uh, and that came at a spread of mid swaps minus 17 basis points. And they, they've done deals uh, sort of uh, around that level in that kind of size. Now, the important thing to note here is that the EIB has not necessarily been able to issue debt in as long a maturity on average as the EU. Now, the EU aims for an average maturity of the for this programme of 15 years. Uh, and obviously, the longer the maturity, you expect to pay more so that investors are compensated for that risk. Now, in 2021... According to data we collect at Global Capital for our primary market monitor, which sort of measures benchmark issuance uh, statistics across the SSA market and, and a few others, um, on its euro borrowing in 2021, the EIB had an average maturity of 15 years. But a dynamic of the market this year, when rates have been rising and rising rapidly, is that investors have wanted to buy shorter deals so they're at less risk of losing money or suffering sort of spread widening and prices falling. Uh, and that means that the EIB has only been able to issue uh, euro benchmarks with an average maturity of 8.6 years, according to our data this year. So it's borrowing, it is it is issuing at a much tighter spread than the, than the, uh, than the EU, but it's, it's borrowing a lot less. I think the EIB had to raise something like 60 billion euros overall this year. Um, and of course, it's borrowing at a much shorter maturity. So if the EU is the whale in the SSA market, how are the other issuers going to cope with it next year? Right. Well, they've got a number of things that they have to do. And the first will be obviously a sort of continuation on um, 
on the theme of the last two years, where they just have to sort of navigate carefully around the EU and what it's what it's doing in the capital markets. I think I think gone are the days where the EIB and KFW say were the only only game in town. Everyone looked out for them. Uh, now everyone sort of anticipates EU deals long in advance, knows they're coming, knows they will be huge in size, and uh, issuers will if they do have these elevated programs, will just have to time their deals much more carefully um, around when the EU is in the market. And of course, the other thing you can do when there's a massive well um, in your waters is, is find new ponds. And um, mm. those issuers, like EIB and KFW, like a number of SSA issuers, will have access to other smaller markets. And uh, if I guess if the uh, sort of price of the funding there is competitive, they will look to lean on those other sources of funding as much as possible next year. And actually, that um, makes me think of another story we ran this week, um, where which um, is about a, a bond for Egypt. Um, obviously, a completely different kind of uh, issuer, but they are looking at doing something quite innovative, uh, which is to issue a, a bond in renminbi uh, sold into China, known as a panda bond. Um, that but um, that might be guaranteed by multilateral development banks, such as the African Development Bank and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And this is uh, sort of quite a new idea. It, there are some precedents, but but it's quite new. But that's that's an example of sort of going far afield for, for money, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's a story by uh, George Collard, our emerging market reporter, and Toby Files, our managing editor. And it is interesting. Like you say, it has been done before. It's it's done quite a bit uh, in the Japanese market, uh, where Japanese investors are typically very sensitive to credit. They want well-rated borrowers. And so they use agencies such as the Japan Bank for International Cooperation uh, to provide a guarantee for less well-rated credit so that they have enough trust in it to buy buy the debt. And now Egypt is trying to do the same thing in the uh, offshore uh, China issuer market, the, the panda market. It's in talks with the African Development Bank and the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank about providing a similar guarantee. And that's a story we'll be following more and uh, looking to find more out about in the coming weeks. Yes, that's right. But in the meantime, we spoke to Kenny Wastel about developments in the private debt market. Good morning, Kenny. Hi, John. So you've been writing this week about the private debt market in Europe and um, some interesting things going on there. So, Kenny, just set the scene for us. What is private debt? Right. So private debt is essentially when you have uh, managers who will raise funds. It will typically be closed-ended. They're not, not always closed-ended, but typically closed-ended funds, meaning that they've got obviously a lifespan, which can be anywhere from sort of seven to 10 years during which time they'll have to uh, invest that capital and then return uh, the capital to their investors. Those investors could be university endowments, could be insurance companies, um, all, all types of institutional investors. They will invest that money as uh, debt and uh, probably direct lending is the, the type of uh, private credit that people will be most familiar with. So that is essentially where they take on the, the role of the banks. Um, and they've actually kind of 
taken that over since the global financial crash a lot in Europe, uh, particularly in the kind of smaller side of the market where banks have perhaps uh, rolled back a bit um, after the global financial crash. But these tend to be riskier loans, don't they? Then they're not your average uh, bank corporate loan. Uh, yes, they will. They will typically be be riskier. Um, they will also typically have slightly higher return, um, obviously, um, as a result of that. Um, and it's it's an area that I think a lot of investors had have turned to. Um, when I say investors, obviously, I'm talking about the the insurance companies and the likes um, have turned to, given that there's been historically low uh, interest rates um meaning that they've had to look elsewhere for that for that yield that they would perhaps have, have had in the public markets before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so bring us up to date kenny um over the last year or so what's what's happened because obviously the interest rates generally have risen um enormously so um what's been going on in private debt as a result they they have done um well First thing to say is that private debt had a stellar year in terms of uh, fundraising in uh, 2021. So the amount of capital that they've had to invest in these deals has been the, the firepower, if you will, um, has been um, much, much greater. Um, what we've seen as a result is we've seen a lot of these uh, fund managers, these private debt managers uh, appearing in kind of higher profile uh, leveraged deals compared to, you know, preceding years. And that's been a gradual process um but i think we've seen it very markedly um over this over this summer really and it was partly because um the ordinary leveraged finance market with you know dominated by banks or at least mediated by banks uh, has has been sort of fairly sort of bunged up this year hasn't it and do you think that's created an opportunity for private debt yes it has done but it's also actually created uh... Well, that with those opportunities have come challenges because um, what you've had is you had fund managers that were out deploying capital very, very rapidly. I think actually um, one of my colleagues here at Global Capital covered this earlier in the year. Um, but they they had that fundraising environment where they knew that a lot of money was coming down the line. Uh, so they were, you know, not not racing. Obviously, they were doing their, their due diligence, uh, etc. But they were very actively getting that money out of the out of the door um, and invested uh, in in companies um, obviously then the situation in ukraine developed and uh, the entire landscape changed and they're perhaps now finding themselves needing to kind of go to the market again uh, in terms of fundraising to to raise capital to be able to continue doing that and then there were two uh there were two notable uh, fundraisers this week though weren't there Yes, absolutely. So CVC has closed its uh, direct lending fund on its European uh, direct lending fund, I should stress, on uh, 6.3 billion euros. And then uh, we've had Albacore, uh, which has held a final close on 2.2 billion euros. But it's actually against a kind of breaking the mold really a bit, because as I mentioned, the situation in in Ukraine uh, that happened obviously has had a global effect, but in terms of Europe in particular, um, it's had a a marked effect. um, And there was actually the data out, uh, I think it was around three or four weeks ago by uh, PitchBook, who is a 
yeah, the financial data provider, um, showing that there had been a, a huge drop off uh, in terms of uh, private debt funds raising, uh, being able to to raise capital uh, this year. So a massive drop off in the number that had you know closed off those funds to new investors, uh, held final closes as as they're called, um, compared to to last year, and it is a significant uh, a significant drop. Uh, that they've had so that CVC and Albacore, um, those two closes are a really nice way to round off the year, but uh, perhaps not indicative of the the fundraising market as a whole in Europe. So, have some of the managers had to delay fundraisings? Do you think, or 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 or, or reduce their ambition? Yes, absolutely. There are quite a few that we've uh, known about that are sort of. Um, Big names, uh, Bridgepoint, MV Credit, Erasio, um, Bermira, who have all kind of pushed back fundraising, who had been, you know, known to be out in the market. Um, a lot of those are still expected to close, but the process has been much slower. Um, on the specifically focused on the CEE region, there was a, a smaller uh, manager, CVI, um, which is headquartered in Poland, but invests in uh, SMEs around Central and Eastern Europe. Um, it actually held a, a final close this week as well. Uh, it was on, I think it was 132 million euros. But in August last year, they were saying that they were targeting 300. So you can see that that's had a very direct impact on them, understandably, uh, perhaps given where they're where they're based and what their market is. Um, given Albacore and CVC's success, what, what other types of... Uh funder sort of having success at the moment in in raising this money if others are struggling yeah so the flip side to the direct lending um drop off uh, is that there are other strategies that are perhaps a little bit more equity like or that certainly that have more equity like returns um special situations funds um you know distressed more opportunistic uh strategies uh that actually uh, from uh, all of the the signals that we're getting out of the market are, are doing very well in terms of fundraising. Uh, so there's Alchemy in there, Signal Capital Partners, uh, M and G. That's just a few of them. There are, there are other names out there as well um, that seem to be doing doing fairly well. And I, I suppose there are a few possible uh, reasons for that. Um, one of which is that there's obviously been a lot of kind of um, instability in the the public equity markets uh, and given the return the risk return profile of these funds that maybe starts to look attractive to a lot of uh, investors who would otherwise you know be be banking on the listed uh, equity markets so when when we talk about equity like returns we we're talking basically high reward but high risk is that is that the the theme yeah higher risk typically it there would be lower risk perhaps than the than listed equity, uh, but certainly a higher risk than your straight uh, direct lending fund. The, these things, a lot of them will perhaps have, you know, equity kickers in there. So in, in essence, um, where debt can be changed into uh, equity, depending on um, how things pan out, how the investment uh, pans out. Uh, so that's the type of thing that it does have a it does have a higher risk profile, but it also has uh, higher returns. Uh, and perhaps that looks attractive in in a market where the the list you know listed equities aren't uh, aren't performing so strongly. 
and we should say that these special situations is a is, is a bit of a euphemism but uh, and distressed companies these are one, basically companies that are not doing very well and or have got too much debt aren't they and that is that have got into trouble and and that creates an opportunity for a new lender to sort of uh make money basically doesn't it yeah absolutely or um it could just be you know very complex uh complex transactions that perhaps banks mm -hmm. wouldn't want to mm -hmm. get involved in um particularly at the lower end of the market um there would you know typically be a lot more uh for want of a better phrase labor intensive uh deals yeah. that would uh, maybe not make so much sense from a, a large bank's perspective, but for a, a, a smaller fund manager, um, they're well-versed in, in how to kind of manage those those situations. And and how do companies, the, the actual end investors, the pension funds and insurance companies, do they, sure. would they typically have a sort of allocation that percentage that they would put to uh, direct lending and private debt? Yes, yeah. So they would do would, um, fall under their alternatives basket, and uh, again, that's a feature that we've seen um, as the listed equity markets have fallen. Their allocations, through through no fault of of their own, uh, just because of the nature of the kind of uh, instability that we have in in the in the market at the moment, uh, their their listed equity share gets smaller, which makes their allocation to alternatives, including private debt private equity, infrastructure, et cetera, it makes that allocation look bigger. So that the, in percentage terms, that is, is uh, bigger, um, which they, they may very well want to then go ahead and uh, invest in these asset classes because they're performing well, but they will have had, you know, they'll have an investment committee that will meet however often, um, but perhaps every, every three months or so, um, and they'll need to you know, wait until decisions are taken at that level before they can just go ahead with uh, committing to a private debt fund, uh, you know, where they might have done because they still had some headroom in their allocations to the, to the space. So, so what's the outlook for, for this sort of lending, uh, Kenny? Uh, those, those sort of wider dynamics don't look like they will change necessarily. If, if there's a recession coming, you wouldn't necessarily expect equity markets to suddenly rebound. Um, and you would expect sort of more, uh, as John puts it, special situations to excite and delight um, the sort of yeah. racier end of the market. Uh, so what what are people saying about, um, and what do these two uh, fundraisers from this week tell us about the market that's coming up? Well, I guess one of the key features that's been ongoing really for the last year or two in uh, private debt, but uh, what these two fundraisers do show us is that these kind of big names are still able to raise capital for these type of uh, transactions. There's been what's referred to as bifurcation in the market. So you see these sort of big brands being able to go out and raise, but perhaps smaller managers that a year or so back might have found it slightly easier to to raise their first time fund um, won't be won't be able to do that um, so much. Uh, in terms of you know strategies that we expect to see come to to prominence, I think yes, that this it's likely to be this continuation of a move towards more um, opportunistic or even yeah d distressed and special situations type type funds. 
I suppose it's one of the one of the other dynamics we've seen this year with rising rates, um, notwithstanding the the perils of the leveraged finance market, is that it's sure. it's encouraged a lot of borrowers back to the public markets or investors to public markets anyway. So will that will that also have a knock on effect on the private lending market? Do you think? Yes, it could have an effect on the, the sort of deal pipelines for for these companies. Certainly, that hadn't been the case uh, up until uh, up until very recently. Uh, as I was saying, a lot of these managers have been deploying at speed so much so that they actually had to go out and, and raise funds, perhaps even slightly earlier than they had uh, anticipated having to do so. Um, there is still capital to, to be deployed, as these two um, fund causes have shown. Um, and I think even following up on um, on the Albuquerque one, we've we've actually seen that they've made filings for a successor Um to this vehicle, so they're obviously fairly confident um, that you know they'll be able to to deploy that that capital. So, Kenny, given that fundraising has become more difficult, especially for the sort of mainstream direct lending funds, do you think they're going to be able to play such a prominent role in leverage finance uh, in 2023 as they as they have this year? Well, I think what we're likely to see is. Uh, whether or not we see a rollback uh, in terms of seeing them less present um, is yet, you know, yet to be seen. Uh, but certainly, I think that rapid acceleration that we've had, um, yeah, will clearly be affected by if, if there are fewer players out in the market, there are fewer funds uh, that are able to to invest in these transactions. So I would say. It, it's very possible that we'll see a slight rolling back, um, but mm-hmm. certainly we would expect to see a slowdown in that trend that we've seen over the last kind of few years. So plenty of big developments to look forward to in the direct lending market and the SSA and emerging market bond markets next year. And you'll be able to follow all of those at globalcapital.com. And in anticipation of that, keep an eye out for our review of the year and outlook for 2023 special report. That will be out before Christmas and it's free to read. It looks right across the spectrum of capital markets and it also features some very exciting interviews. So do keep an eye out for that on the website too. It only remains for me to thank Kenny and John for joining me to record this edition of the podcast and to thank Gerald Hayes, our producer, for editing it into something altogether more listenable. So thank you very much for listening and we'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. Goodbye. (laughs) 